Uh, it's uh, Daniel chapter 3, I'd say that's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Uh, if you hit Psalms in the middle, keep going forward. Uh, Daniel is one of the, what's called the major prophets, it's the last one of the major no, is it the last one? Yes, it's the last one of the major prophets. So you'll hit Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel uh, is the shorter one towards the end of that. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth, breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace therefore as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn pipe lyre trigon harp bagpipe and every kind of music all the peoples nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that king nebuchadnezzar had set up therefore at that time certain chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the jews they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews among whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was, it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counsellors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counsellors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is God's word. The men are gathered as one. They represent people of different races, religions and values. They have worked like this as a team for years. Today they're asked for a new level of obedience to serve the idol before them. The furnace has been stoked before their eyes. They know the subtext. It's not just serve, it's serve or else. For some, it's an easy decision to make. They're either already devoted to this particular idol or they've got no particular scruples either way. Others, however, are being asked to deny a thing that is central to themselves or possibly even higher than themselves and certainly higher than the idol before them. And even so, some of these people with concerns of their own submit in fear. But a few brave men stand aside from the pack. Their own peers turn against them. Look what they've done. They draw the attention and outrage of the nation's ruler. What will become of them? Ultimately, we still don't know. The saga of the Manly Seven isn't over yet. What did you think I was talking about, Daniel chapter 3? 
I don't know if you've noticed, this story has dominated headlines this week. The management of the Manly Sea Eagles asked their players to wear a rainbow jersey in their rugby league fixture on Thursday night. Uh, seven Christian players said no and chose uh, not to play. One or more players who were subsequently handed the chance to debut also said no out of conviction. That's a high price. Their coaches supported their stand. And so far, their teammates seem to have been reasonably understanding as well. But given the choice between balanced reporting and outrage, guess which route our media has gone down over the last week? That's right, in the name of the doctrine of inclusivity, seven men of colour and faith have been subject to public misrepresentation and scorn. We don't know yet where this ends for these men. Uh, the outlook's not real pretty. But then stranger things have happened. It's interesting timing that this should have dominated our news feeds in the week that we as a church uh, are due to study Daniel chapter 3, a, a story from ancient history with numerous obvious parallels today. In light of the Christian islanders of the Sea Eagles being called the Manly Seven, may Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego hereafter go down in history as the Daniel Three. A beautiful name invented by Bernard, if I, if I have to give credit where credit's due. Uh, a beautiful name made all the more beautiful and fortuitous by the fact that their story is told in Daniel chapter 3. Friends, uh, let's be serious. There is a looming moral dilemma for every one of us and we are hurtling towards it. The fires are being stoked. The furnace is being heated and its mouth is waiting to swallow any who resist. This is true. I'd be surprised if you haven't already felt the heat on your face, if you are a faithful Christian. But this isn't just some big bad reckoning that's waiting for us in the future. And it's far from unique to our culture and our time. There are temptations and expectations hammering against us every day, demanding us to conform and compromise. This isn't just post-Christian stuff. This is everyday trials and temptations. There is nothing subtle about the scenario in Daniel chapter 3. Bow before an idol or burn in the flames. It's, it's not, still not an easy choice when you weigh the consequences, but it's not subtle, is it? You know the right thing to do without question. But there is a bit more to navigate when it comes to the daily things like wear the jersey or lose your place, chug the drink or lose our respect, cut the corner that everyone cuts or lose out on the perks that everyone else takes for granted. And you can probably think of a thousand more from your own life. Let's look at Daniel 3. Last week we heard from Daniel chapter 2. Uh, how King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had a dream. And in that dream, he saw a statue. Uh, and the statue had a head of gold. Uh, and the rest of the body was made of materials in descending levels of value. Uh, and King Nebuchadnezzar is told by Daniel that one day all of this, uh, that the statue represents, all these kingdoms, all of this will come to an end. But for now, the gold head of Nebuchadnezzar's dream symbolises him and his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar. And this week we see that King Nebuchadnezzar makes for his kingdom, kingdom a statue 
plated entirely with gold. Perhaps he took his inspiration from his dream of chapter 2, we don't know. Uh, It would demonstrate an exercise in spectacularly missing the point of the dream, but then that's sort of King Nebuchadnezzar's thing. Verse 1 says the statue is 60 cubits high. 60 cubits, uh, Google tells me it's about 27 metres, pretty much the height of the sunflower painting in Morton Park, as it happens. Um, Which, you know, is surprisingly big when you stand at the foot, as lame as it sounds. Anyway, having built this statue, probably a statue of their their nation's god, Marduk, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar now demands that everyone in his already diverse kingdom bow down and worship it. For a start, King Nebuchadnezzar gathers the senior officials of his kingdom to celebrate the dedication of the statue. And as we've gathered in chapters 1 and 2, some of these officials are Jewish nobles from the courts in Jerusalem uh, that have been uh, stripped from Jerusalem in the siege that Nebuchadnezzar ran uh, against the city a few years earlier. Uh, The end of chapter 2 has Daniel himself staying behind in the palace, which probably explains why Daniel doesn't feature in chapter 3. Uh, since the statue isn't born, uh, isn't built in the palace but out in the plain of Dura and no one knows exactly today where that is. Uh, but his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and, Abed- and Abednego, they are what's called at the end of chapter 2 uh, officials in the province of Babylon, meaning they fall into the list of verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3 of people who are invited uh, to, the temp- uh, to the idol's dedication. Verses 4 to 6 state the command. Let me read it uh, and point out a few problems. The herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, this command sets off at least three alarm bells in the mind of a discerning Jew. First, there's the direct command to worship an idol. That's enough. We don't need to be any more subtle than that. That's it right there. This is Judaism and, for that matter, Christianity 101. The opening of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. This is the law carved into stone by God's own hand. To disobey it on the whim of an earthly ruler, even the sovereign King Nebuchadnezzar, to disobey this command would be to deny their God and to erase their own identity. That's one problem. The second problem uh, with the command is it's, it's followed up with a th- the threat of death. Now, maybe it doesn't seem like a big ask to simply bow down. Just do it, guys. Move on. Maybe you can even keep your fingers crossed behind your back while you do it. But if the punishment is large, then the request is not small. They are not being asked to do a small thing at all. Worship uh, in this context was not a simple act of lip service or or the bowing of the head. Just as worship of the God of heaven is not a simple act of attending church on Sunday or occasionally opening a Bible or having been baptised once in your life. Worship uh, has certain obvious uh, expressions 
but is an all-of-life thing. There is one more alarm bell that I want to point out uh, in, this, in these commands of these verses. It is a little more subtle, uh, but it's crucial that Christians develop uh, the radar to detect these things. So the scenario that King Nebuchadnezzar constructs is where peoples, nations, uh, all peoples, nations and languages are united as one, joined in jubilant worship to a single God. Friends, that was God's mission for Israel. To form a kingdom where people of every nation and language could come as one to worship God himself. The nation of Israel was never supposed to be a refuge just for the Jews, with a keep-out sign for anyone else, anyone different. It was asking for a level of conformity. The nation of Israel was asking for a level of conformity, yes, that worshippers of God conform to God's design for worship and his moral standards as well. But it wasn't a whitewashing of diversity. Uh, it was an open door, an invitation. And friends, God's ancient mission for Israel is God's today mission for the church. The church is to be a place where every minority group and disenfranchised people is welcomed and loved. Perhaps you've heard of a man named Stephen McAlpine. He's a minister uh, in Perth. Uh, he keeps an excellent blog. I'd encourage you to look it up. It's always thought-provoking. Uh, he wrote this week about the Manly Seven fiasco and he pointed out this. Uh, in an argument for, for why they couldn't just wear the rainbow symbol. He says, the pride story is a good news story itself. It's an alternate gospel, gospel meaning good news. Uh, you can almost hear the tune. Amazing pride, how sweet the sound. Once I was lost but now am found, was blind and unenlightened to modernity, but now I see. The story of pride and inclusivity under that banner is setting up an alternate good news story to the good news story that God has set up. A good news story where people who are different may still celebrate their diversity but come under a single banner and submit and conform to God's perfect design for life. So what God planned for Israel, what God is fulfilling today through his church, it was corrupted two and a half thousand years ago when King Nebuchadnezzar introduced uh, what I'm calling inclusiveness by force under the banner that he chose. And today the pride movement is doing the same thing. But while the Christian church is called to love her enemies, the pride movement's MO is to cancel its critics. And so back to Daniel 3, the orchestra plays. And verse 7 says, All the peoples, nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There are just three exceptions. Three strong men stay on their feet. And their enemies rat them out. It says in verse 8 that the informants are, uh, it says, certain Chaldeans who were a set of the wise men, possibly astrologers, we don't know for sure, but people who also advised the king. Uh, hear their accusation uh, as it's recorded in verse 12. They say, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now that is a remarkable accusation if you read Daniel 1 and 2 before chapter 3. 
Correct. On two counts. They do not serve King Nebuchadnezzar's gods. And they won't worship the golden image he set up. But they pay no attention to you? Really? These are some of his best officers. They've been promoted before. Now, one of the judgments that's come out against the manly seven, the rugby league players who wouldn't wear the pride jersey, is that they didn't show sufficient regard for their team. Never mind the fact that they've moved away from their families and they play their heart out every single week. This, this arbitrary, but not really arbitrary, flag that they won't wear on their jersey, this shows they don't care about their team. Not true. They care for their team, but this thing has flown in from left field and has nothing to do with their team and everything to do with their deeply held religious convictions. And it's a similar scenario for the Daniel Three. They've actually shown faithful and exemplary service to King Nebuchadnezzar. The accusation against them is two parts true and one big part insane. But if you can generate enough outrage, you can prove your point, right? It's the name of the game on the internet and in politics today, and apparently it's not a new tactic. It's there in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar is furious. His face goes bright red, and his whole countenance and attitude towards these faithful servants is forever changed. Well, not forever, but for now it's changed. Still, he gives them a second chance. Uh, He offers them again, uh, if you will just... Uh, concede to doing this next time uh, then you're off but if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace and he says laying down the challenge who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands God hears our prayers and I think he also hears our challenges their response is sublime Verses 17 and 18. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In the Lord's Prayer this morning we prayed... Your will be done. I've said this many times now. This is the prayer of faith. Your will be done is the prayer of faith. People say that to pray with faith is to make demands and believe you'll get what you want. Garbage. No. Faith is to confidently hold these two things at the same time. One, that God is able. And two, that God is free. God does as he pleases. Faith is to place your life trustingly into the hands of God and to willingly and cheerfully go where he leads you and eat what he feeds you and die when he takes you. That is faith. Faith is not contingent on what God might do next whether he will heal you or deliver you from this current unpleasantness. Faith is contingent only on who God is and on the things that he has already done. 
while King Nebuchadnezzar flies into his rage. He orders for the furnace to be heated in probably seven times its usual heat and has the Daniel 3 bound, fully clothed and led by his strongest men to the opening of the furnace where they're tossed into the flaming pit. It's amazing to consider the detail of what happens next. The mighty men who marched the three to the furnace are killed by the extreme heat. The cords used to bind the three are instantly consumed. But the three men themselves are walking around freely in the company of an angel, unharmed, so untouched by the fire that not even their clothes are singed or their hair smelling of smoke. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar sees when he looks into the furnace opening. Not three men, four. Not dead, alive. Not hurt, walking around. Verse 25, I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of his fire, of the fire. And they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, if you've heard this story taught before, then like me, there's a decent chance you've heard it said that the fourth man walking in the flames was Jesus himself. Perhaps you've heard that said or theorised. I think it comes from King Nebuchadnezzar's words in verse 25 that the appearance of the fourth man is like a son of the gods. We hear son and God in the same sentence in the Bible and we think it must be talking about Jesus because of how the New Testament describes Jesus, the son of God. The thing is, sons of God gets used other times in the Old Testament to refer to kings uh, who draw their power and authority from God. It's, it's sort of an image, a metaphor. Uh, it's also used to refer to angels who are divine in nature and origin but not the son in the unique way that Jesus is. Now, we believe that Jesus exists eternally. He was born roughly 600 years after the events uh, of Daniel uh, chapter 3, but he was already in existence, the, son of the, etern- the eternal Son of God. But the fact that there's other more obvious explanations for King Nebuchadnezzar's meaning when he sees what looks like a son of the gods, and the fact that angels feature reasonably heavily in the book of Daniel after this, and the fact that more isn't made of this event in the text itself or later in the Bible, that makes the Jesus theory, to me, pretty unlikely. And anyway, it's unnecessary for the story to work. The story still works. The point isn't that Jesus was there and that, and that he's always with us. That's a good point. And, and it's made well enough in other passages in Scripture. The point is that God has saved once again. And look, if you want to find Jesus in this text, and I'm going to admit, I'm of the predisposition that I do want to find Jesus in the text, even in the end and particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm of the conviction that the Old Testament, written before the time of Jesus, points us to Jesus, leads us to Jesus. And so I am committed to finding Jesus in this text. Let's see if we can find him. We've got men of integrity, true to the one true God, falsely accused by jealous opponents. We've got men sentenced to death. We've got men essentially delivered from the grave, even emerging from the door of what ought to have been their final resting place. We've got men of righteousness vindicated by God in heaven because they would not bow the knee 
to the gods of the modern age. We've got men attended to by angels in the hour of their greatest need. We've got captives set free by passing through the trial that was designed to consume them. Jesus is all over Daniel chapter 3. And at the end of Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar promotes the Daniel 3 and he proclaims peace for the people of God uh, to worship the one true God without fear of prejudice or punishment. In Daniel, God uses the crisis and the sentence of death to promote his faithful servants and bring peace to his people. In Jesus Christ, God does much the same thing. He uses the crisis, the cross, to raise Jesus to his own right hand, promoting him to a place of authority in the kingdom and to bring a peace that reigns in the hearts of all who will trust in him. Peace for his people, for his Israel, his church. So at the end of this, what does Daniel chapter 3 demand of us? I'm going to make three short, simple points to close. What does Daniel 3 demand of us? One, never give in to idolatry. The Bible tells us that greed is idolatry. I imagine in our, you know, central Queensland place, there's not too many people with idols in the closet that you're like, oh, just want to bow down to that idol. You probably don't have too many family members encouraging you to do so. We've all got temptations. Greed is idolatry. Greed is the modern idol. And look, greed, you know, it's coloured green, isn't it? It, it, it looks like money, uh, the way we, we think about it normally. And gee, I wish I was, a, I was free from uh, the love of money. I used to think I was until I stopped making money. And then I wanted it again. But it's not just money. You can be greedy for... Uh, for all sorts of things. Never give in to idolatry. Worship God alone. Serve Him. Don't serve created things. Lead, don't be led. Use, but don't get used by the stuff that you have. Second thing is here, in here is fear God more than the consequences. The flames of hell are hotter than King Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. The devotion that God demands is greater and more costly than to simply bow when the music plays. But know this, know that unlike King Nebuchadnezzar and his idol, God is not fickle and easily angered. He is famously slow to anger, in fact. He gives time and opportunity to repent He tenderly cares for and nurtures his children. He leads them through the valley of the shadow of death to streams of cool waters. Fear and serve the Lord more than fearing the consequences. And finally, I do think, particularly in light of events of this week, that Daniel chapter 3 does demand of us a commitment to do the gospel of inclusiveness better than the world does it. Do inclusiveness 
better than the world. I mean, that's, that's a part of Nebuchadnezzar's agenda, is to draw everyone together under his chosen banner. I don't know the hearts and minds of the manly seven, but if they're going to choose to not wear a jersey with rainbow stripes on it because they can't celebrate and promote the LGBT lifestyle, they need to also employ their Christian convictions to love and embrace LGBT people. Probably they do. We don't know. That stuff gets hidden in, in, in the wash of media. We may never wave a rainbow flag from the footpath out here on Campbell Street or Barilla Street, but we need to be, at Emerald Presbyterian Church, we need to be more committed than the NRL to embracing people of every gender, race, level of ability and even, dare I say, sexual orientation. Even as we long for these people, just like we long for ourselves, to be conformed daily to the image of Christ who loves and covers us. We need to do love really well. And you don't have to do it on a platform or on social media. You need to love your family and you need to love your neighbours. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Daniel chapter 3. We thank you for uh, just this vivid and, and, and in so many ways self-explanatory illustration of really what it takes to worship you. Uh, we're reminded that, uh, that it's not easy, that in many ways we're in modern-day Babylon. This is not uh, a Christian nation. We live uh, in a world where, uh, where the agenda uh, is in conflict to your desires. And it's going to get tricky. We pray that you'll give us wisdom. We pray, perhaps even more than wisdom, that you will give us courage and faith to do what is right, to trust you with the consequences, to lay our own lives in your hands. Father, we confess uh, the many compromises that we've already made. Pray that uh, you would forgive us for our sins, that you would welcome us into your kingdom and your loving arms. We pray that you will uh, give us your spirit so that we can navigate uh, the tricky days ahead and the day that's before us even now when temptations are still bound to come. We pray that we will be a church that practices inclusivity better than the NRL, people who don't just play lip service or, uh, or wave flags or wear badges, but people who actively love and support our brothers and sisters, even and especially those we disagree with. We pray all this.